Italia 90 one day at a time. I'm Rob Murphy. Day 14 has arrived. The final day of the group stages. We have made it almost anyways. And once we get past this podcast to the knockout stages and what a show we have for you today. Ireland took on the Netherlands. All the fallout of Eamon Dunphy versus Jack Charlton. Plus there's uh, three other games to talk about as well. Kieran O'Hara on the line. Ciao Rob. We've got some good guests uh, along today. We've got Mick Foley as usual, so we'll say hello to Mick. How are you, Mick? Good, Rob. How are you doing? Very good. We've uh, brought you back in to watch Ireland. Uh, we couldn't force the lads to watch two Irish games in a row, uh, such was the way Ireland were playing in this group. I tell you what, I, I was uh, at the end of having watched a Dutch game, uh, which wasn't, which you couldn't call it a classic either. My, my admiration for the bravery of the men who uh who sat through Ireland Egypt was only enhanced, I have to say. It was uh it was it was I beyond the Call of Duty stuff now to sit down and to, to sit down and watch Ireland Egypt. But uh I, I, I hope they I hope they learn something from it, if, if if only never to watch it again. I'm I'm <laughs> sure they're gonna put up a statue to us in future years that will in due course <laughs> they, be torn down because yeah. we said something wrong. <laughs> it's, it's it's guaranteed. Guaranteed. Bet you say something wrong. <laughs> Philip Quinn is on the line. Philip, you don't get as much credit for having sat through it the first time because you at least went into that game in the hot sun of Ireland Egypt that day with some sort of hope that a game of football might break out. Uh, but it didn't. And the fallout is what we're discussing today. Yeah, I, I've, I have to say that I haven't watched a replay of that game. And to those of you who have, I think you should be awarded a badge of honour. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know how many... I, <laughs> or certified uh, lunacy. I, I don't know how many Irish games I've seen over the years. Um, a lot of them are memorable. That one, I actually can't remember very much about it. And I did a, I tried to do a bit of research. I was looking up the, the game uh, and, and uh, just sort of notes, etc., and books. And you know what? It's still, it's, it's still utterly forgettable now, 30 years on, as it was that hot day um, in, in, in Palermo. I think, I think the, the, best, the best match in Palermo probably was the Irish press played a local team of guys the day before, and Liam Brady played in that match. And that was a far more entertaining game than the game we saw <laughs> the following day. And in fact, I'd be quite happy to talk about that game because I played in that one and I can remember a lot of it. I remember Liam Brady being taken off by the late Peter O'Neill of the Sunday World and they had choreographed it. And Liam took his shirt off and stormed to the dressing room and the whole crowd were watching around and going, I can't believe Brady's been taken off. And Peter shouts out to him, you're not doing it for me, Liam. You're not doing it for me. You're not putting it in. And Brady walks off the field and the Italians, it must have been about 2,000 there. And even us, the press guys, we didn't know it was going on. Liam had arranged with Peter so he could get off and get away quickly before he was mobbed afterwards. That was the best game played in Palermo and Liam Brady played and if Liam had played in the real game the following day, well it might have been a better game to talk about. My my, if his testimonial had been like that in Lansdowne Road. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a story to start. Welcome along Philip. Uh, listen, all these years later we're, we're looking at Italia 93, the prism of all of us were a lot younger then and we have kind of fond memories of it for some of Mm. us our first World Cup Um, but we also have a keen awareness even when we went into this that it's regarded as being a pretty low on entertainment World Cup and from an Irish perspective it's this seminal moment in Irish football and Irish sport but also a kind of a a bit of a conflicting moment as well in terms of some of the issues that happened, especially around this game and the fallout from the Egypt game, the Eamon Dunphy saga through the prism of today looks so different than it looked back then when you were there. Yes. Um, you know, it's easy to look back on that World Cup and say, you know, it was the lowest World Cup goals of all time. It was a dour, sterile uh, tournament. You know, the Italians were paralyzed by fear. Maradona was, you know, was limping from match to match with a, surrounded by henchmen and hitmen. 
Um, you know, teams that were supposed to deliver didn't deliver. Um, probably the best game in the World Cup actually was the game between West Germany and Holland in the last 16 match. That could have been us there, but for the look of the draw. And then you have, you know, some people, you know, we can look back at it and sort of say, yeah, we, were, we weren't great. Where Our two goals came from long kickouts, one of which in the match we're about to discuss. Um, we weren't very creative. But at the time, there was a sense that we were just part of something unique. We'd never been to a World Cup finals before. And I think we, I think collectively, we, the Irish nation, the Irish players, the Irish media, uh, kind of felt, you know what, let, let's just, we're there. Let, let's enjoy it and let's embrace it. Um, could we have played better football? I certainly think we could have. Should Liam Brady have played? He should have gone to that World Cup. I still maintain that. I'll always maintain that. But in the middle of it all, you had this Dunphy-Charlton thing. And Dunphy loved to, Eamon was mischievous. You know, Eamon loved to sort of bring down people and um, because he knew he'd get attention. And he was, he's very good at it. He's a very accomplished journalist and very good at turning the story towards him. And after that game against Egypt, where we were poor, but I, I will say about that match, the Egyptian team set out not to lose. They actually had a good start uh, in their opening game. They'd drawn with the Dutch. They could have beaten the Dutch. The Dutch, by the way, were internally fighting with each other completely. I will, we'll turn to that again. Bean Hacker had taken over from Michels, and they were, you know, the Dutch have, have imploded in many tournaments, and they were having a row internally themselves. But the Egyptian manager was afraid of the Irish team. And he set out his team not to lose. So you have a team setting... Our, op our opponents don't want to lose. They're playing against an Irish team that is not overly creative. You know, we bypass midfield. So the props were in place for a poor game. And by God, was it poor. We actually had three or four half chances. They had none. Uh, and Eamon, watching this back at home, decided to go on the attack. And then he went things further by flying out uh, to Palermo to arrive just in time for the press conference before, uh, Jack's press conference before we played the Holland game. And you know what? It was, it was as combustible as, uh, as, as throwing a match on, on oil and it took off. And it was extraordinary. Can I just ask, Philip, did people know in the press at the time that Eamon was going to be coming out that week? Um, there were rumours, all right. We had heard about what he had said on television. Um, uh, probably a little bit distorted by, by uh, what we heard, you know, that he'd flung a pencil or he'd flung a pen across this, and he said, I'm not proud to be Irish. And I don't actually think he said those words. Uh, no. Um, but th that was the paraphrasing. And that was, of course, Jack was getting this, that uh, Eamon Dunphy and, uh, had said that he's not proud to be Irish. And Con, that was a real insult to Jack because he felt that you know, it, was, it was an attack on him because he's in charge of the Irish team. He wants everyone to be proud of the Irish team. And um, Jack's view was that uh, we had played two games and we, had got, we, had, we were unbeaten. We got two points. Um, now, did we know Dunphy was coming out? I'll be honest, I can't recall that doing the rounds uh, that morning. Uh, but I went into the press conference that morning and one of the first people I saw was Eamon. And I imagine, imagine saying, I said to my colleague, PJ Cunningham, we were covering for the Herald, and I went, there's going to be a show here. Incidentally, um, Rob shared it with us today. There was a poll in the Herald, which I'd say Telecom Aaron were delighted with because you had to phone in. <laughs> yeah. But 93% of the public were backing Jack, and just seven were backing Eamon. So yeah. that's the background in terms of public sentiment. When you saw him in the room, were you thinking... Like, could you feel people's reactions as they walked in and saw him? Everybody knows when, when a room is looking at you. Yeah. Yeah, there was, uh, well, we knew what was coming. We knew Eamon wouldn't hang around long. He was going to get his question in fairly early. And I think Jack had been tipped off. I think Jack had been, you know, there were, there were handlers, you know, buzzing from the, 
podium over to the side where Jack was coming in. We were sitting in a very warm, sticky room. We're all wearing shorts and all sweating. Uh, and Jack came in and I think he was wearing a, holding a pair of runners. And he was looking around the room and there was some question got in earlier. I don't know who it was. Uh, was it the PA man or was it from TV? I'm not quite sure what the first question was. But Eamon then came in pretty quickly and, uh, and Jack stood up and he said, you know, I'm not answering your questions. You're not a proper journalist. And Eamon said, I'm from the Sunday Independent. I don't care. You're not a proper journalist. And it wasn't that long, actually. It was over very quickly in terms of the, 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 you know, the, the altercation. The big man up at the stage, the big Irish man, the six foot three World Cup winner, and then the, the little sort of pocket bantam that was Eamon was throwing the jabs. And the cameras were panning from Eamon, panning up to the front, panning back. The journalists were looking, do we go left, do we go right? And Jack says, right, he says, I'll talk to a few of you guys. And, and away he went. And we kind of turned to Eamon, and Eamon, of course, you know, I'm, I'm only over here doing my job. You know, that, that's, there's, there's an example of what this, you're dealing with here, a guy who won't, you know, be professional and, you know, trying to intimidate, trying to be a bully. And, and then there was a sort of split because the word came back that Jack would talk to five journalists uh, and he would, he would do the, the pre-match press conference. Good old divide uh, and conquer. So divide and conquer. So there were journalists who said, well, well who, who'll go? And then one or two of, like, I, I, was, I was 28. I was, it was, I was relatively young compared to the other journalists who were there. And I'm thinking, uh, I have my job to do, which I have to report this for the Evening Herald. So I didn't have a call to make, but I didn't. I thought we probably should have said, look, lads, we're, we really should support our colleague here. Uh, if I'm being very honest, but another part would have said, well, if you do that and you get no press conference from Jack and you get no team news, you get no thoughts on the Dutch, um, you're already eight and all that, you know. So it was a tricky one. We really were caught in a bind. But myself and PJ, we just got on the phone and I picked the phone up and I got through to the copy in the, in the Evening Herald. And I just said, you know, Irish manager Jack Tarleton was involved in a blazing row uh, with, with um, you know, uh, with broadcaster um, and, and firebrand pundit Eamon Dunphy today in Palermo. Point paragraph, you know. And the editor came up onto the phone after a couple of minutes and he said, what have you got? And I said, well, a few more. Qu Keep it going, he said. We're holding the paper. So we just kept going and going and going. And PJ was <laughs> running around the room and he said, I'm after getting a quote from Eamon and I'm after getting a quote from an FAI. He says, Jack will do this. And I was just phoning it in and calling it out. They were the days, uh, and Mick Foley might remember the days when we used to do this before we had sure uh, fancy laptops. And, uh, and, you're, and, and we got the, the copy down. The, the, I think the, the the Herald, we were an hour ahead, so the Herald probably had a deadline of about half past 10. This was probably closer to 12 o'clock now in, in Palermo, but the Herald stayed and we got on the front page and, um, and then we updated it for the, for the next editions. And it, it, was, uh, it was a spectacular sideshow, but that's what it was. And uh, it, it took away, it was the day's news, but it, it didn't take away from what was coming the next day, which was the match. And by the time of the match, we had moved on. But it was a great day's story. It really was. And... The ironic thing was, and I'll just tell you one little follow-up to it, that in 2000 and, sorry, 1994, in America, we were in the team hotel, and um, Eamon and Jack were best buddies at the bar, you know, yapping away, <laughs> sharing drinks, and, and laughing, about the, uh, laughing about the incident. And Eamon would, uh, would admit that he had come over to, to get, a, get, a, get a yarn, to get a reaction, to provoke the bear that was Jack. And, and Jack would, would, would admit, and he, did, he actually admitted it actually that night in Palermo, that he shouldn't have reacted the way he did. That he was wrong, uh, but you know, Jack would have a big. Jack was a great man for losing his cool, having a big eruption, and moving on very, very quickly and forgetting things. Um, but in in nineteen ninety four, the two of them were best buddies. I think I even saw Jack buy him in a drink, and Jack didn't buy too many drinks. I can tell you. <laughs> 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 the, the Nick, interesting thing. Go for it. Sorry, yeah, no. The one thing, and and Philip kind of touched on it there. As someone who's obviously not in that scenario, but in situations where lads have walked out of press conferences before, um, you'd have, you know, 
the straightaway thing, like Philip just said there, is okay, uh, what the hell are we going to do now? Right? So I'm, I, the one thing I was wondering was the, the, the mood among the press corps in general, like, were they annoyed? Did they feel it done? Did they just come over to pull a stunt? Or did they feel, you know, did, did, did they kind of feel he's just kind of screw us here? <laughs> on, a, on you know, at the, at the at the most crucial moment possibly of our of our working week or fortnight here. Well, either way, he was giving us a story. Mm, Dunphy yeah. was giving us a story because he had provoked Jack, and Jack had reacted, and Jack had lost his temper, and he shouted and he pointed fingers. So that was a story. So you're getting a story anyway. Uh, Eamon was there for the Sunday paper, so he had a few days to get to get his his yarn together. I didn't think that we were looking at Eamon as if he had he had pulled a stunt, but on reflection, I suspected that uh, that's what he had done, and that he was quite happy to have done it. Uh, but my, my view was that at the moment he had given a story to, that, that was for the Evening Press, it was for the Evening Herald, it was for the RT News at one o'clock. That was the story. And it, it, it spilled over into the next day. I mean, it, it dominated the, the match previews the next day. So he had given us a story. And as it turned out, Jack did talk to a couple of Irish senior journalists. Uh, told, he spoke to Peter Byrne of the Irish Times, who was his, his ghostwriter for that World Cup and, and other books he did with him. And then so information came back from Jack about the Dutch, about the team situation, about injuries. Uh, as it turned out, you know, Jack picked the same team basically in every game of the World Cup, um, so there wasn't too much to, to go on there. So no, I don't think we were we weren't we weren't sort of you know annoyed. At, I, I don't think anybody was really annoyed with Eamon or annoyed with Jack. My view was that the two of them have given us a story, and uh, all stories were welcome in that World Cup. I mean, there was a story every day, and that was that was the big one. It's amazing. It's an amazing. Um, it's it's it was an amazing standoff looking back. I mean, as you say, like Jack's reaction was probably too much. I was looking at Dunphy's piece the following Sunday. He admits that his reaction to the Egypt game was too, was 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 unskilled, let's say, uh, <laughs> as well. So I mean, they sort of um, they walked themselves into this thing. But uh, if anyone is curious, I was looking up just to see what was the question he asked, and he basically, I, I think, something along the lines of, "Is Ireland's style going to change during this World Cup?" I mean, <laughs> it's like, I said that's... You know, you know the answer to that before you even ask it. So I don't think uh, I don't think you're going out there to uh, to prize out any new information. To be honest, you know, we're viewing this through the prism of 30 years later. We're viewing just through a much more uh, through an Ireland that knows football so much better than it did in 1990, if I can say it that way. And and it's something that we've touched on already in this podcast. The sport kind of just swept across the nation at that time in a way that Eamon Dunphy and John Giles were probably frustrated at also. Um, so, but looking back at it, the notion that 93% of people admittedly motivated to call a poll as well. So I don't know how accurate it is as a reflection of the nation, but would, would actually phone in and side with Jack Jardin in this situation is, is nearly daft. It'd probably be much closer to 50-50 now today, wouldn't it? Well, I don't think that you could have had, I'll put it this way. If the, if the Dunphy chart and spat hadn't happened 30 years ago, um, I don't, and all that has followed, I, I, I think people... You'd have the same reaction now, I think, is what I'm saying. It's what you said there, Rob. I mean, we're just a bit more, we're just, we, we, as a nation, we just know a lot more about football now than we did then. Even though, you know, football obviously has always been a hugely popular sport in the country. But when you actually start to drill into the thing, and, uh, you know, as, as Philip said earlier, I mean, the whole nation was on just such a wave. The team, the media, the, the country itself, the population back home were just enjoying the thing so much that any idea of someone sticking a pin in the balloon um, was was just abhorrent, really. And I mean, to be fair to the lads, to Dunphy and Giles, what they were saying wasn't wasn't particularly a, a betrayal of anything they hadn't said before. I, I think I think if 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 I'm right in recalling, I don't think Dunphy had gone in studs up on Charlton 
to that degree, to that point. But certainly, you know, there had been criticism of the direct route and, and sort of questioning over, you know, the use of the likes of Ronnie Whelan, Dave O'Leary, obviously, Liam Brady, as we mentioned. So you, you had that side of it. I mean, the, the thing that struck me after after the after, after the press conference and that, you're kind of thinking, and again, as a journalist, I suppose you're thinking, well, his piece on Sunday is going to be something, you know? And I mean, I, I dug it out this morning just to have a look at it. And I have to say, mm. when, whether you agree with him or not, or whether you support his view or whatever, um, or whether you think he's he's playing it up for the playing it up for the gallery or whatever, it's it's an it's a terrific read and it's it's a really thought provoking read read on all sorts of levels. I mean, I mean, without wanting to go to it's a very very long piece, but without wanting to go too deeply into it, I mean, his his first question is why is Jack Charlton not answering questions like every other World Cup manager at this at this tournament? Um, no, I can't. Obviously, can't speak to that thing as I wasn't well, there. We know that but, Bobby Robson wasn't either. Well, we know that, yeah, absolutely. Bobby Robson had walked out of a press conference to play. Well, he had, he hadn't walked out of a press conference, but he had, he had treated, he'd given the press a very short shrift after some allegations about a, an Italian 90 hostess at the hotel and the, and the players and so on. So there was a bit of that going on. He makes the point in the piece like there's a lot of managers under pressure here. So why, and, and they are dealing with the global media. Why, why are they, why is Charlton choosing not to, or at least dealing with them? In a way that Dunphy saw as boorish and sort of uh, ignorance is, is one of the words he used. But that aside, the, the interesting thing for me, and this again looking at thirty years of a remove, he makes the point that there's an Irish football tradition, and it, you know, he still talks about it to this day. There's an Irish football tradition, and there is an English football tradition. And what we have at play with Jack Charlton as manager of Ireland in 1990, Jack Charlton had had been, I don't think he'd even been considered. As an England manager before that, he had written a letter, I think, applying for the job back in the early 70s and not really been considered. In Dunphy's view, Charlton had felt that English football had been betrayed by the way it had evolved in the following 15, 16 years. So to basically taking on Ireland and adopting this approach was a kind of a, an attempt to justify his convictions about football and particularly about English football and where English football should have gone. But what you have in effect is an English approach if, um, kind of mixed with an Irish tradition that you're trying to impose a style of play on a group of players and it doesn't necessarily work. Now, that's all well and good to say in theory. I mean, I'm old enough to remember watching Ireland all through the 80s and seeing them trying to play out and trying to play a game and it, didn't, it just didn't work for whatever reason. As far as the nation was concerned, Ireland are playing a style in 1990 that works. And it's getting results. It's ugly as hell. And to look back on it now, it's it's even worse to look at. But you can see where you can see where the conflict comes. And the question Dunphy asks, the asks in the piece is, is the line is the the price of being what we are must be right. And he's arguing that the style of play and the way Ireland is conducting itself as a football team on the field is leaving itself short and it's not right. And that's his and that's and that's his argument. It's an interesting one. There's a lot of post-colonial angst there. Like it's, it, there certainly is, and that's the thing. You have to look at all this through the prism of of what Dunphy would have been thinking around that time. Um, and it's it's an interesting idea, though. I think that because when you look at the Egypt, particularly now looking at them back, if you look at the Egypt game and, and the Dutch game, Ireland do not deviate one bit. Like it's clear in the Dutch game that the Dutch uh, that the Netherlands are not playing well. That they're kind of there for the take, and if, if Ireland can get at them, but they do not deviate one bit. And it reminded me of watching it back then and kind of oftentimes, I always remember there was a game against Northern Ireland in the World Cup qualifiers that year who won 3-0. George Dunlop, I remember, was in goal. That's right, the Linfield keeper. At the time. 
and they won three nil. But it was just so incredible that Ireland had scored three goals. And I, I, it's funny you forget the detail of these matches, but when you're watching them back, you remember the feeling and the emotion that you would have felt watching the game. And I remember watching that Dutch match and kind of feeling we're not how are we ever going to score because we're just doing the same thing all the time. So I'm one like this, and this speaks to Dunphy's point in the sense that Jack had such a conviction about this style of play in at least in 1990 that there was no way he was ever going to change, and that in itself was to the dereliction of Irish football once they got to a major tournament. And that was the thing that needed to change, but he wasn't willing to change it. Philip, how much of uh, Eamon's approach was uh, free because of what he believed in and how much of it was... So let's put it this way. Eamon clearly wanted that fight. He wanted that battle. He wanted the showdown. But did he want to show down for the right reasons, as we're hearing there? Like if that Was that part of his tactic to try and get something that he really believed in on the table as a discussion? Yeah, I, 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 I listened to Michael with interest there, and um, look, look at Dunphy as a player. He was a small, slight, skillful player. He, he, he was never a big man, so he, he, he survived in the English league. He survived at, at Reading and, and, and Millwall, Millwall for a number of years by, 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 by being creative and being able to avoid big bruisers. He would have come across lots of big Jack Charlton types in his years, and he managed to avoid all them. But he, so his philosophy was street football, play the ball. His idol was John Giles. John Giles could play better on the ball than Eamon Dunphy, but he could also look after himself a lot better than Eamon Dunphy. And Giles had managed Ireland and, it, and it had improved us to a certain degree. He improved the way we, we were prepared for matches and he improved the way we played, but he didn't get the results. He didn't get all the results he wanted. Um, and this was the discussion I've had with Liam Brady not that long ago. Brady was convinced that we could have achieved results the Giles way with the players we had from sort of 86 to Charlton inherited um, the players the clubs were at and they had been allowed to express themselves in the Giles way that we could have achieved greater things. But Charlton decided he was going to go a different route. He didn't believe the players were there. He didn't believe there were enough Bradys to play the way that Brady wanted to play and had played under Giles, the way that Ireland had been moderately successful but still hadn't qualified for a tournament. And he looked at the Irish players available and he recruited one or two others, Aldridge uh, uh, and Houghton, and he decided we were going to go the way he wanted us to go. And Jack was very pragmatic, and I've spoken to a lot of players about, about that time, and Jack was very clear in his instructions. It wasn't just, you know, put them under pressure and kick the long ball. They, they knew what they had to do. And I remember McCarthy saying to me that when they did, I had a session in Leeds early on in Charlton's reign, and he was lining the, the, the team up, and he was saying about the... The fullbacks weren't to get the ball off the goalkeeper, that, you know, and the midfielders were not to take the ball off the fullbacks or the centre halves. It was all to go long. And McCarthy was sure, I'm, I'm not sure this is going to work, but it did work because it became effective and it got results and the players bought into it. But I tell you one other thing. Charlton, when he became Ireland manager, would have gone down a different road. I think he would have gone down the Giles road, the more expansive road, which was play the ball through midfield, be more creative. The role that... The, 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 the style that Dunphy cried out for and the style that he, you know, he went to Italy saying, why can't we play this way, Jack? And he would have, Jack Charlton would have gone down that road if he had two players available to him. One was Gary Lineker. He didn't have the pace over the top in the, in the options to him. Stavlin was a hold-up guy. Cascarino and Quinn were, were, you know, similar type players. Aldridge wasn't particularly quick. He was sharp in terms of put away a chance, but he wasn't quick to get the ball, put the ball over the, the top. He, ha he hadn't got a Lineker. So he decided he wanted his front man to hold the ball up. He wanted the centre forward to play out and take, the, take on the full back and bring the centre half out, out of his comfortable position and allow for the runners from midfield. And the other player he didn't have was Glenn Hoddle. 
He didn't have a guy who could control the ball in an instant and play a pass from 10 yards to 60 yards and put it on the foot of the guy who was receiving it. So he decided to be pragmatic. And whether you liked it or not, it got us results. Was it ugly? It was pretty turgid to watch. The Stefano said in that World Cup, ah, the Irish, they play one-two at the Angels. And that's what we did. Um, could we have got... You know what? I think that World Cup was actually there for, for, for victory for Ireland. But I don't know if we would have been successful playing the way that Dunphy wanted us to play with the players that Jack brought to that tournament. We were one or two key players light, Lineker and Hoddle with those two. So effectively, if he had been able to persuade Paul Gascoigne to play for Ireland when he spoke to him, mm. he had that hoddle less player. Yeah, that, that's, that's bang on. That was the hoddle less player. And look, Gascoigne carried England to the World Cup semi-finals and, with, and to a penalty shootout. Uh, and he was mercurial, but he would have listened to Jack because he actually was, he did have a lot of time for him. Um, you know, it's, it's, you look back at it now and you wonder what we could have done. You look at the players we had, the clubs they were at, uh, and had they been allowed to express themselves, would we have got to those tournaments in the first place? You can't say for sure we would have. Would we have done better if we had got there? You know what? You, still, you think back to that game, and I know we're drifting a little bit, but the Euro 88 game against the Soviet Union, that was where Ireland, the Ireland team expressed themselves. And that was the day where Ronnie yeah. Whelan was probably at his best. And Ronnie Whelan was a player marginalised. And Charlton decided that he didn't have room. It wasn't an anti-Irish thing, although he didn't mention that in his book, and I don't think it was anti-Irish, but he felt his ball players were luxuries. That's why O'Leary didn't get in. That's why Brady was marginalised, and Ronnie Whelan didn't play in that World Cup in 1990, but I think he should have. He, he, his, Charlton's philosophy was to play a certain way, and that meant there was no time or no room in his starting eleven for the ball players. The ball players that, that J- J- Dunphy lamented for in Genoa and, and lamented for in Palermo and why he went and he, and he, and he stoked up Jack that day. I think that's Make right. And it's interesting, like that's that group of death, as it was called at the time. And it was rightly so. It's funny in a way you look at it and like, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of media stuff going on in that group. And there's a lot of, a lot of squabbling going on in different ways. Like, I mean, England obviously had their issues with the media. Um, mm. The Dutch had their issues. Egypt came in with an, having had an awful run into the World Cup. So presumably they were under pressure from home as well, to some degree anyway. Um, and then, the, But the Irish one is different because, as Philip said, it was a kind of a... It wouldn't have... I, I doubt if it bothered the players. If anything, it may have galvanised them in some way, but I'd, I'd say it was a kind of a more of a private one-on-one thing there that the nation kind of cottoned on to because of that, because of that sort of... Um, since that, that that Dunphy was 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 bursting the balloon and going against the grain. The one thing, and, and it's look, it's too big of a it's too big of a topic to go into now. But I've often wondered whether one of the legacies of Italian ninety, and there were some marvelous ones, obviously for Ireland, some great legacies and some great things came out of it. But what what one legacy was that the global view of Ireland as a long ball physical team was embedded for time to come, and that we possibly struggled with that. Um, down the years so you had the likes for example of Trapattoni coming in at one point and going well you know what was successful for Ireland long ball that's what I'm going to do regardless of who or what players he had now to be fair the quality of player has has dropped steadily over the past 30 years you could argue you could argue that that you know that could be also connected to the fact that that the long ball sort of um philosophy sort of dissolves the amount of ball players the amount of encouragement there was to play the ball in Ireland maybe at all sorts of levels but anyway I, I often wonder whether whether that was one kind of uh, invisible invisible effect down the years that, that that's kind of maybe even held us back a little bit since, you know? Day 14, June the 21st, 1990. 
Republic of Ireland won, the Netherlands won. Philip, we have to just quickly assess this game, and, and you can bear in mind that in a 24-podcast series on Italian 90, we're going to properly assess the incredible uh, positive impact uh, Ireland's uh, journey towards the quarterfinal had. So it, just one day in time, we're just getting you to look now as, as we finish off this chat on this game in question, this game that took Ireland into the knockout stages and sent them on the journey that just uh, has left such a legacy. Uh, it was a battle. It was a scrap. It was... A Nile Quinn goal that dug us out of a real bad situation. Did you get the sense that Ireland were going out of the tournament as you watched that game? Uh, yes, I would say so. Um, Rob, I mean, we went we went behind early on. Uh, Gullet was the, the danger man. Uh, he was the, the one player that Charlton was fearful of and uh, he got in behind the defence. An angle shot. Um, and we didn't create an awful lot. And and then we heard early in the second half England had gone ahead against Egypt. And uh, This group was really tight, remember. There hadn't, hadn't been a, a victory in it. And and then we got a break, and we got a break the way the Dutch got a break against us in Euro 88 with a sort of a, a quirky sort of a, def- whatever you would call it, a rebound or deflection, whatever it was, when um, the long ball from, from, from Bonner, and then I think it was, was it Van Arla? Um, yeah. Miss hit the yeah. sort of, I don't know what he was trying to do, he stuck his right foot out but on his left, and it spun up and looped, and Van Breukelen spilled it, and, and Quinn got in, and, and Quinn had only gone in ahead of Cascarino, and Cascarino was shattered at being dropped for that match. And he had come onto the pitch and you watch a celebration. He's a little lukewarm as he goes towards an oil. Uh, but Quinn followed up like he did and, and, he, and he sort of squeezed it home with the long legs. And, and then, after about seven or eight minutes after that, we were sort of looking around each other. And I said to one of the lads, I said, we're playing tippy-tappy out there. I said, uh, I think that someone said something to somebody. And we were looking around and there was a little murmur in the press box. And yeah, they are. The gloves are gone off. It's, uh, it's ceasefire. <laughs> And, and then at one stage, we saw uh, Cascarino, who'd come on as a sub, charging into a Dutch player. And then a Dutch player said something to somebody. And the, you could see a message being relayed up to McCarthy, the Irish player. And McCarthy confirmed, not then, but afterwards, that the message had come through from the Dutch. Tell that fellow who's just come on to stop pushing himself about. We don't want to get an injury here. Because at that stage, we were one all. And if England stayed 1-0 against um, Egypt, the three teams were all going to go through to the next phase. And it was kind of an Anschluss. As a, and, and, and a stalemate and we sort of the game petered out it was an awful finish dreadful finish but the final whistle went and then there was confusion because there can only be confusion where Ireland was concerned the drawing of lots the drawing of lots we, we, we worked out that we had come or we second or we third because we this, ourselves and the Dutch had played three drawn three scored two goals conceded two goals had drawn against one another we were level you could actually argue uh, we're, we're Netherlands ahead of us on, on alphabetical order probably or Holland as they were called in that World Cup anyway so then, 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 then we were waiting for who was going to do the draw and, I, and I, I'm fairly sure it was Tony O'Neill the FAI General Secretary who was uh, asked to represent the association and, and he pulled out the lot or whatever way that came and we, we, we got drawn to play Romania in, uh, in Genoa and the, and the Dutch for their the reward got to play West Germany in Milan which was the game of the tournament because half, half the two teams were playing for uh, Inter Milan and AC Milan so uh, we dodged that bullet I don't think we'd have beaten the Germans to be honest with you but uh, yeah that was, that, was, that was it and I think after that game you know what we had parked completely the pre-match row it was, it was gone it was all about looking ahead it was the knockout stages and it was how far this, this journey could take us and uh, we may have been not the prettiest girl uh, at, the, at the dance but we were still there and uh, some other wallflowers had gone home they, I think the Dutch might have reconsidered the, the, the Anschluss had they known the outcome. 
Oh, you know what? I guarantee it. But for guarantee me, with it. with the benefit of thirty years, this this is the bit I find most disturbing about all this is that they settled and it was all contrived and all agreed. You hear people talk about what Austria and Germany did in nineteen eighty two, and there's uproar, and yeah. none of that is reserved for either the Irish team or the Dutch team in this well, instance. There's, there is a difference there, Carol, because the the. What the Germans and Austrians did in '82 was to, to contrive a two-two, or to contrive a result that would definitely knock Algeria out. We we weren't contriving a result to knock anybody out. And that's yeah, and that's, and that's and that's that's fair. That, like that's the best context. But for me, as someone who believes in fair play and honest endeavour, you would really hope that both teams go to the end of this game trying to win it because they've had a benefit over near enough every other team in the tournament in that their game is on last. Yeah, but I, I think you're on. It gets against the grain of of, of competitive sport it, to to not just seek out whatever is the best possible outcome. I, I think if if you're asking teams to motiv- motivate themselves in the midst of a situation that suits both themselves, it, it's a tricky one. I, I don't think it's as clear cut as Austria and, and and West Germany as it was in '82 because I just think as you in the midst of a game you stop and you think about it, you're asking players to go for it. Like I was watching Uruguay and we, we talk about we talk about them separately, obviously. But Uruguay were all guns blazing because they knew they had to get a goal. But the motivation for those two teams just wasn't there. So it kind of worked out pretty well anyway. And it was a funny one. Like, I mean, again, they're, they're, it's a funny week. They're, they're professional sports people. So they figured out, you know, okay, how we what's, what's the best outcome for us here? What's the best way to achieve the best outcome? And they go do it. Mm-hmm. As you do in your professional life most of the time anyway. And like the interesting, the funny one for me was, and it was, again, it was one of those little kind of bits of memory to back your head from the game, when the referee pulls in Ruth Hullett and Mick McCarthy with about 10 or 15 yeah. minutes to go, Michelle yeah. Yeah. it's like, it's like a boxing referee telling two lads who won't punch each other, lads, you got to punch each other. And yep. uh, <laughs> they, they kind of go away and you can tell that they've had the chat. That's all I can do, lads. And the rest of it then is just, it is, it's hideously bad, but I mean, to be fair, Ireland strung more passes together in that fifteen minutes than they did for the, rest of the entire tournament. So, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's not, not, it's not, it's not nice to watch. Like, but one other thing that does tell you as well, and I think you're right. I think professional sports people they they they, they seek to pass the less less resistance and and uh, and what benefits them most. But wasn't it wasn't it a sad indictment of the Dutch that they won your away the eight? And, and they were willing prepared. to do it. They were willing to 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 to, 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 to down tools and, and settle for a point against us. You know, Absolutely. and that was a great Dutch team, you know, and I think that just reflects the the difficulties they were having internally. They were all at sea in that, in that tournament. Well, I know one thing, if, I, if I'd put a few euro or punts at the time on a win for Ireland, I'd have been hoping they kept trying. We can sort of um, be critical of Ireland's style or, or performance in that game or, or what they delivered. But I mean, you can't, you can't get past the Dutch. The Dutch were really, really poor. Like, I mean, Ireland, I, you know, I, I think I'm right in saying um, Ireland had had a shot after 15 minutes just from watching the game the other day from watching Ireland had a shot after 15 minutes from Paul McGrath and they didn't have another shot on target until Quinn scored with 19 mm. minutes to go mm. and in between that the Dutch do pretty much nothing pretty much nothing Rudd had a decent chance um, there's a few bits and pieces but I mean you know again the guys that you're looking out for just are not there Van Basten is not in the game Frank Rijkaard's just having the dark night of the soul, playing centre-half, mm-hmm. jumping up with Niall Quinn, wishing he was anywhere else but there. <laughs> yeah. um, and as you say, I mean, the very Van Arla error is just so bizarre. It's so difficult to figure out what he was even considering doing, putting his, putting his leg up. 
Um, mm. And then Van Boyklin spills it, spills it and Quinn gets it. And fair play to Noel Quinn for following it in. But like, it's, um, it, I mean, you, you, can't, you can't get past the fact that, and it's been discussed, I know the boys have discussed it on this before, that this entire World Cup is just like one massive missed opportunity for the Netherlands. And we'll get to that in the second round. Philip, uh, thank you so much for sharing this. I know our listeners will have been really enthralled by the stories from uh, following the team and, and that famous week in the lead into that game. Infamous week, I should say. You know what? No problem at all, Rob. I'm so glad you didn't say to me, you know, was Char- the Charlton the Char- Dunphy route, did it compare to anything? And I was just thinking, you know what? In terms of Saipan and Keane McCarthy, <laughs> it was, you know, it was a mere little ripple. That was <laughs> a proper tempest. And that's a debate for another day. Yeah, we're <laughs> when, making that podcast. When we get to 2002, one day at a yeah. time. Now, there we go. I'll be, I'll be delighted to come back. <laughs> Thanks very much for having me on, lads. England won. Egypt nil. So yeah, there you have it. England won, Egypt nil. Kieran, they got the job done. Wasn't a classic as most games in this group, right? No, no. And uh, I did find, incidentally, Rob, um, Mick referenced that Bobby Robson did Daily Mail columns during mm-hmm. the World Cup. He had a diary in shoot. No. Would you like to know what the lead up to this game was like and yes. post-matches opinions? Yes. I'll, I'll start with, with the context. He's very worried about Gary Lineker's toe and Brian Robson's Achilles. So on the Wednesday, in a last-ditch bid to get Brian Robson fit, he has called in a faith healer to help him get over his injury. She has assisted him before, most recently with his hernia problems. No. But the decision to play him will be made on scientific and medical evidence and nothing oh. else. Oh, good, good. <laughs> so Glenn Hoddle is not the only England personality with a faith healer. Uh, Lineker is still a bit of a worry, but assures me he will be fit. Everybody must be in the best possible shape because I want my players to prove they are international class, not just club class. Sometimes they do that and sometimes they just threaten. They must get it right this time. And then Thursday, June 21st, England won Egypt nil. We've done it. Top of the group and safely through to the next round. You can't ask for more than that. And while we wanted to smash Egypt, it was always going to be very close. Nobody in this group has given anything away. As I feared, Brian Robson didn't make it in time, but at least we had Gary Lineker. I decided to revert to our usual defensive formation because I wanted to push more men forward, but we had our work cut out against the team who battled us for every ball. They were diabolical. They were diabolical. They went from the three at the back sweeper system with Mark Wright. They went back, as Bobby points out in his shoot column, they went back to do you know what? I'm still, I'd have to go back and check was it 4-4-2 or some kind of a weird 4-2-4 or 4-2-2-2. I, I, it's really hard to tell. They, they've, they've dropped Terry Butcher. They have Mark Wright and Des Walker at the back. They have Robson is gone, so they bring Steve McMahon back in, who had lost his place, having made the error against Ireland in the first game that handed up the goal to Kevin Sheedy, or the chance at least to Kevin Sheedy. They've put Steve Bull up front alongside Gary Lineker. They've put John Barnes and Chris Waddle on the wings Presumably the idea being that they get out wide and get some crosses in. But what ends up happening is they kick the ball as far down the field as it possibly can. Barnes and Waddle, for some reason, come infield. So everything has been played down the middle. Bull is no impact whatsoever. There's no space for anybody to play. And the Egyptians are just laughing. They're just laughing at them, sitting back, going, this is exactly how we want the game to be played. 
in small spaces where we can disrupt them and basically not really do anything and just try and hang in there for the draw. It's This was one of those games where you can absolutely see why the English media would get on Robson's back because he had cracked it. He had cracked it against the Netherlands. He didn't need to do any more tinkering or, or, or meddling. The fact that Robson was missing, the fact that, you know, he just had to, he needs to make one change. But he ends up making all these changes and, and, and it's a structural change. And it's just awful. They get the goal in the second half. Paul Gascoigne, who was about the only source of light, himself and Mark Wright were the two best England players by some, by some distance. And it's appropriate that Wright gets the goal from a Gascoigne pass. Come a Gascoigne free kick, and that's it. There is really nothing more to be said apart from that. When the Egyptians come out and play after that because they know they need to get a goal, they look pretty decent. And it's a damn shame they didn't do it a bit sooner. I was one of the takeaways from the rewatch for me is just uh, completely had no memory of the fact that Egypt were a relevant force in this group, which is so outrageous considering, you know, it was such a tight group. But also just, I feel so sorry for their keeper, Schubert, because it was such a, it must be a moment that Egypt fans look back on with such regret coming out for that ball as he did and just fresh air really, wasn't it? Yeah, like it, it was, well, he'd had a, he'd had a decent game. He I had. mean, they did not they did create, and they did create chances. I mean, mm. They, they did create chances in the last 15, 20 minutes. But, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, this match really encapsulates everything that made Italia 90 an ordeal. You had, a, you had a decent team playing really poorly, a lot of time wasting at times. You had a lot, of, a lot of play acting going on. Some of the tackling was pretty bad. And also one thing that really, I don't know, has it come up much yet so far, but the offside rule. When you're looking at it through 21st century eyes, yeah. if, there's even, if there's even a sniff of offside, the flag has gone up. And there's been a couple, I've noticed a few episodes now in, in games where guys have gone through and they've been pulled up for offsides when it's it, not offside. And if it is, it's abs- if it had happened now, they would have been let through. But um, oh, it's just so stop-start. The, 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 the ground is half empty. The, the atmosphere is flat as hell. Um, the whole thing is just, it's just so bleak. But England get through. They're in the second round. They finish top of the group, so they don't have to worry about the drawing of lots and all that stuff. So, you know. Not more to be said, really. Belgium one, Spain two. All right, this group finished in a kind of an interesting fashion with three teams going through, Kieran, and in this game, uh, Spain getting the victory. Belgium actually still playing well. I don't know if there's a bias here because we enjoyed them in the first two games. I still think they play well in this game. Uh, Luis Suarez was the most stressed coach I've ever seen on the sidelines. <laughs> Take it from there. Yeah, he broke the fourth wall, didn't he? He, he decided he'd had enough with the camera close-ups. But <laughs> do you know what I feel like now, Rob? We're day 14. Yes. We're halfway through the four games. I kind of feel like I should bring up the opposing captain and ask, can we take it easy now for the rest of the podcast? <laughs> but, but, but we can't. So we're back in fair Verona. And, and this was a game we would have been excited about, okay? And, but all the action really was in the first half. Like, yeah. it's done and dusted in the first half. We've got, Michel gets a penalty. Uh, so four goals in two, in two games for him. He's hitting form. Belgium replied, now, Enzo Schifo gets side down. They get the free. Verver puts it away. An unusual source for the winner, Alberto Garis. And again, Billy Joe made the point before about Michel's passing. It's from a free by him, header into the top corner. And actually, still, Belgium can still top the group because they get the penalty. And our hero, our great number 10, oh, yeah. 
just can't do it on this occasion, can he, Mick? No, he hits the crossbar. And, you know, you know you're know, you right. I mean, most of the action was, was kind of more or less done just by half time. But I tell you what, that penalty goes in. And it's on the it's on the hour. You've, you know what? You've got the makings of a classic half an hour left because, I mean, you know, obviously I think they're both qualified at that stage, so it's kind of first and second. But they um, it just I I don't know. Do you know what I have to say? This was my first time having a proper good look at Belgium, having heard you guys just extolling them, raving, the yeah, over the first two games, raving. And I have to say, <laughs> I was left a little bit flat. They were lacking energy in this game. In fairness, now, yeah, the guy, and I mean, you know. I, I won't be fooled. I won't be fooled because I mean you can see Shifo. I mean Shifo Shifo does enough in the game that you can sort of actually Shifo strikes me as a guy who could be playing now. You know he's he's just got all the uh, pieces that you see yeah. you you see in guys now. But the Spanish the Spanish as you've discussed already were a fairly industrial Spanish team. Julio Salinas to me was probably their best player on the day. Up, he was up outstanding. Yeah, and won the penalty to get them going. And yeah, he and he had a lot of battles with Ireland around that time as well as I recall. But um, mm. look, they it, they were it was it was what it was. Key point here, though, about Belgium. I mean, whatever you think about the little plans he got them on this game, England having hope. I'm just saying it now. I'm predicting an easy enough win for Belgium in the second round. I mean, they're light years ahead of them. Uh, so unless Bobby Robs is going to just change his tactics. Well, we, we can always check his diary, can't we, Rob? Uh, <laughs> I think it's time we move to Udine, the then oh, yes. Stadio Fruilli, which is now the Dacia Arena. Does that say anything more about the change in times? An Italian stadium sponsored by a Romanian car company. <laughs> South Korea, nil. Uruguay, one. Both sides winless. Significantly, at least Uruguay had the point from the draw with Spain at this same venue. And I, honest to God, I'm not sure that either team wanted to win this game, Rob. <laughs> and, and then to throw in the, the even more bizarre, like a red card for time-wasting in the 70th minute, Diok Yo Yoon sent off for South Korea and still you're going Uruguay can't crack it until the final minute. I had this memory of Daniel Fonteca being this incredibly uh, prolific striker. Now he was, he played four different co- clubs initially, Mick, but I guess it's just because I watched a lot more football in the 90s. Uh, he he was a star out of this World Cup, but unfortunately his career was really hampered by injuries and, and he, this was his only World Cup, which kind of blew my mind. But what a moment it was. 20 years of age, off the bench, your country going out of the competition and bang. Bang. Bang is right. Gets the goal. The, the, the bench is the best. The bench go wild. Like it's, it's absolute uncontrolled delight, relief, I'd say more than anything. Uh, you wouldn't it's Roy the Rover stuff. Like. Uh, it's incredible. It's incredible. It's 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 Arsenal winning the title in 89. It's all of that, you know. Again, maybe, I, I don't know, again, you're, you're looking at those star players and that is a star moment. But in a lot of cases, with a lot of the stars at this World Cup, in the first round anyway, a lot of them are getting double, triple teamed. They're getting, they're getting marginalised in the games. And even when they do get on the ball, it's, it's not, they're, they're not dominating in the way you'd like. There's a, few, there's a few notable exceptions. But the great players so far at this World Cup 
aren't doing it. That's it for today. We've zipped along on those games for good reason, but Uruguay were true. And uh, in the first coming of uh, Oscar Tabares, their prolific and incredible story for him as a coach. We'll talk about him in the last 16 in terms of his second stint, which has lasted to his very days. The, the, the manager with a job for life. Job for life. He's some story. Uh, but just watching him on the bench there, I just suddenly twigged, oh my God, it's the same guy who's with them today. I was totally oblivious to that initially. Uh, that's it from us. Kieran. thanks very much. Take it easy, Rob. Make do I get a rest day? Uh, you do. We all get a rest day and Mick will see you in the knockout stages as well. You're, you've, you've got through the group stages. Looking forward to them relieved. I'm relieved. Thanks, Rob. <laughs>